and welcome to another episode of Knowing Nature, the show all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name is Victor, and this is another solo episode on uh, engaging with nature from the comfort of your own home. In this episode, I'm talking about mini beasts, uh, how to get to know them, and some activity ideas for digging a little bit deeper. So first off, let's get started with what is a mini beast? Now, I'm not actually a huge fan of the term mini-beast, which is used here in the UK by primary schools to refer to basically invertebrates. And the reason I'm not a fan is because it doesn't have any real biological meaning, that term mini-beast. So when we use it with kids, uh, they're often easily able to identify some things as mini-beasts, like ants and spiders and flies. But then when you start talking about things like frogs and mice and snakes, a lot of kids can be unsure of whether or not they are mini beasts because they are mini, they're small-ish, and they're, they're beasts. So aren't they mini beasts? But teachers, when they use these terms, they are referring to groups like insects and spiders and flies. And these are all actually invertebrates. So if kids are going to learn a term, you may as well start with the scientific term. And I think the reason mini beast has such sticking power is because it's kind of a very friendly sounding word, whereas word a word like invertebrate, it sounds long and complicated and scientific. If you're going to teach them a word, you may as well teach them a word that has a clear definition. So really then we should start with what is an invertebrate and An invertebrate is basically any animal without a spine, so without a backbone or a similar structure, because there are some animals that don't have a a bony backbone. Instead, they've got um, what's called a notochord, which is just a a stiff-ish, or it can be cartilaginous rod that runs down the back. Now, we simplify this with kids to say that it's any animal without a skeleton on the inside. Now that's a pretty straightforward definition. Now there are lots of different groups that are inside the invertebrates, but a lot of them are really easy to identify as invertebrates based on visible characteristics that are pretty easy to see. Things like uh, the number of legs, for instance. If it's got six legs or more, basically it's going to be an invertebrate. Most things with four legs are going to be vertebrates, so animals with that internal skeleton, tetrapods. It gets a bit tricky when things have no legs, because of course you've got things like fish and whales that have no legs but are vertebrates, and then you've got the Things like worms and slugs, which also have no legs, but are invertebrates. But when we're talking about on land, then most things with no legs are invertebrates, except for like snakes. So scientific terms, using the scientific terms can be really important because when you're talking to other people and when you talk to other scientists, when you use the the scientific term, people will know exactly what group of features it is that you're referring to. So, for instance, if I'm talking about insects, then you'll know that I'm talking about uh, the group of animals that have three body segments, they've got antennas, usually they have wings, and they have six legs. Whereas if we talk about bugs or creepy crawlies, these are much more woolly woolly terms. So bugs has this unfortunate thing of, um, being, uh, of being used to refer to insects generally, but also refers to a specific group. It refers to 
the group of insects that have this uh, long piercing mouth called a stylet, which it sort of pokes into things to drink the juices. Creepy crawlies is even worse because it's anything that's kind of creepy and crawly. And again, so it encompasses lots of things like wood lice and spiders and insects. Um, but, you know, there's lots of other things that crawl like lizards and things, and, and those are, are not invertebrates. So knowing exactly what group of features you're referring to can be really important to understanding the biology of an animal uh, and how to control them or support their populations. Now, if I'm talking about Lepidoptera, that's the group that refers to animals that we would give the common names of butterflies and moths to. Those are all under Lepidoptera. But if I use the word Lepidoptera, then uh, another scientist knows exactly what it is that I'm talking about. I'm talking about animals that they'll go through a complete metamorphosis. They start in an egg, they go through a caterpillar, they pupate, and then they come out as a creature with antennas, three body segments, six legs, four pairs of wings, and those wings will have scales on them, um, which gives them their color. Now that can be really important because uh, when you understand that that group and they share features, they also often share biochemistry. So for instance, if you have a problem with box moth caterpillars and they've eaten your hedge, your box hedge, you might go and apply a pesticide. And that pesticide might be really effective. It might kill off all those box moth caterpillars. But then you might notice, oh, actually I'm not seeing very many butterflies anymore. That's because, of course, butterflies and moths are very closely related. In fact, those common terms are, uh, they don't link up very well with actual taxonomic groups. They're just common names that we give animals that, um, you know, with moths, it's the group of Lepidoptera that are usually dull colored and usually come out at night. But the same taxonomic group as some moths would ha include creatures that we might call be more inclined to call butterflies because some of them might be very brightly colored, like the elephant hawk moth is a bright pink color. There's the Jersey tiger moth, which is a bright orange. It's got yellow and brown stripes. Um, and they also, both of them, come out during the day, but they belong to the same group as other creatures that share the characteristics that we think of all moths as having, of being nocturnal and being dull colored. So if you're using, if you're thinking about animals in terms of the groups that they belong to, um, then applying this pesticide to your hedge and then suddenly seeing very few moths, uh, very few butterflies, and that is because that they're closely related. And a lot of pesticides that affect these animals um, will often target uh, maybe their endocrine systems, so their hormones, and it sort of interrupts that metamorphosis phase so that they die when they start to pupate. And so if it affects them when they pupate, then it's of course not going to affect just the box moth, it's going to affect all the Lepidoptera that go through this pupation. So using those scientific terms gets you thinking about really the details of what are the features that means that they belong into that group, and what are the consequences of that. Like, you, you know, are they going to be affected by the same chemicals in the same way? Are they going to share a similar lifestyle, even though they live in different habitats? Are they going after the same food? So again, if we're talking about Lepidoptera, we know that flowers are really important food source for the adults. And we know that their larvae, the caterpillars, 
almost always eat vegetation of some kind. They almost always eat plants. So no matter where we are in the world, if we see something and we recognize those characteristics of, ah, this is something from Lepidoptera, this is a caterpillar, you know, we can get a general sense of probably how it lives its life just from recognizing a few key features that put it in that group. So my recommendation would be to use wherever appropriate, wherever possible, use the scientific terms with kids, because if you're going to be teaching them a term anyways, they may as well learn um, the one that that most of the literature is going to refer to. Now, this may not apply to something like uh, Lepidoptera, because there's a pretty technical difference, and our um, the English words, you know, just butterfly and moth, they work pretty well. But in terms of using creepy crawlies versus mini beasts, you know, you, you may as well use invertebrates because those terms are, they're too woolly and invertebrates is not actually that scary a term. So how do you get started learning about invertebrates? My recommendation would be to start by finding some and then learning about those. So find one and observe it. And then if you want, if you're curious about it, you know, what is this thing doing, then read up about it. Or if you're having trouble finding invertebrates and you, maybe you want to attract some to you, like maybe you want butterflies and bees to come and visit you, then if you want to put out, you know, if you don't have outdoor space, but you do have a window that you can put a window box in, you know, do some research into what kinds of plants would a butterfly like? See if you can maybe be really targeted in, you know, maybe you really love blue butterflies. What can you plant in that uh, flower box to attract specifically the blue butterflies? And that, you know, because you've got an interest in it, you'll be a bit more motivated to, to do that research and to dig a bit deeper. In terms of finding ones in your house, some pl good places to find them. A good starting place is windowsills. Now, unfortunately, you're less likely to find live invertebrates there uh, as dead ones because windowsills are where, you know, things that have flown into your house, they're trying to get back outside and they can see it out there, but there's that pane of glass in the way. And so they end up kind of flying up and down that window until unfortunately they die. But it, it gives you a good um, survey of what has flown into your house. If you do want to collect these up, um, they'll be dead and they'll be dry so the best way to keep those is by pinning them or carding them so pinning them is pretty straightforward that's basically where you take a, a pin and it can be even like a sewing needle or a pin something thin and pointy and then you're going to pin it through their thorax and what you're aiming for have the creature be maybe three quarters of the way up the pin make sure you've got room for your fingers to pinch the top of the pin there and what that'll do is it'll keep the, that specimen nice and safe so that, you know, you don't have to handle the specimen itself because dead insects and things can be really delicate. You know, legs will fall off all over the place. Um, so if you're handling the pin instead, then all those delicate parts stay safe. Now, some things will be too small to pin or you might not have um, very thin pins. So you can use any one, like drawing pins or anything like that. You can also buy entomological pins, pins specifically for pinning insects and spiders, uh, but those will be much, much thinner so that they don't crack the specimen when you put them through. Carding is where you take a piece of card or a piece of paper and you use glue to basically glue your specimen to it. With very small ones, your paper might actually be a very long, thin triangle, 
And then what you're doing is you're sticking the pin through the fat end of the triangle and then the pointed tip, you're going to put a tiny drop of glue and it could just be any glue, regular white glue will work. And then um, gently touch that to the side of your specimen so that it um, gets stuck to the, the tip of that paper there. And then same thing, then it's held up. You can handle the pin instead of the specimen itself and all those legs and antenna and delicate parts stay safe. Um, once you've got some pin specimens, just find a box and keep them in there. Uh, you can use a piece of cardboard to stick your pins in at the bottom of the box um, or a sponge or anything like that. Uh, if you want to keep things more properly, then I recommend using a plastic box and you can get foam. You can use foam core from an art store um, that's like a piece of foam board to go on the bottom of the box and then use that to stick your pins in. In terms of finding live ones, uh, live creatures, you can look uh, in the corners of your rooms, under the couch, under the sink is often quite good. If you've got a doormat that leads to the outside, look underneath that doormat and you might find some things under there. If you're lucky enough to have some outdoor space, underneath flower pots is always a very good option for finding uh, worms and wood lice. Uh, or if you've got compost near you, have a look through that. Although if you are looking through compost, you may want to use a magnifier because a lot of those soil invertebrates are very small. Now, what if you're not having any luck? Now, at the moment, we're all supposed to stay mostly indoors. My suggestion, if you are desperate, is to take a, a quick jaunt outside, but in the very early morning or in the early evening, while most other people are having breakfast or dinner and so they're, they're inside, then it's quieter and you can keep that recommended two meters distance between you and other people. While it's a quiet time for people, uh, nature of course doesn't follow our schedule really. And so you will find that quite a few things are actually out in the morning and in the evening. Now in the morning, especially at this time of year, what you'll find is that a lot of invertebrates will be sitting in the sunshine trying to warm up. And this can be a really good time to see the more skittish creatures. So things like flies and butterflies, they'll be much less active early in the morning while it's cold. You'll find them sitting on bushes uh, in the sunshine, warming up for, for the day. For flies, you can also check on wooden benches and fence posts on the side that faces the sun. They'll tend to sit there to warm up. Uh, if you're after spiders, a good place to look right now is on kind of broad leaves in tall grass. And you might find these little brownish, grayish spiders um, that are a little bit kind of hairy looking or furry looking. These are little wolf spiders. They're only about maybe a centimeter or two across at this time of year. And again, they sit there to sun themselves and warm themselves up before they, they're very active hunters. They run through the undergrowth to catch their prey. So they need to be nice and warmed up for that. And you can actually find these wolf spiders in those kinds of places uh, on stones or broad leaves throughout much of the year. Later in the summer, uh, you'll start to see something interesting where some of them will have this white ball that they carry around with them. That's actually their egg sac. And they'll be sitting in the sun to try and keep their egg sac at the right temperature for their young to develop fairly quickly. In the evening, uh, you'll start to find nocturnal creatures becoming active. So look for slugs and snails on soft leaf plants. 
uh, and also worms and wood lice in leaf litter or just in the grass. Now worms you might think you need to dig down underground but that's not always true. Uh, they will come up to the surface uh, at night, some of them, to pull down plant matter into their burrows uh, and then eat them under there. If you want to bring them up though, what you can do is take a very, a little bit of mustard and mix it with some water. No, don't make it too strong, um, but pour that on a patch of ground and then wait maybe five, ten minutes. And what that mustard does, it doesn't, hurt, it doesn't harm the worms, as long as you're not making, you know, you're not slathering mustard on them, but it just kind of irritates them and it'll make them come up to the surface. You can find some earthworms that way. Now, what do you actually do with these creatures when you find them? Well, you can just observe them, um, but another good activity would be to foster an invertebrate. Build a little habitat for whatever creature you find, and most of these creatures, most of these invertebrates, will be okay in a jar for a little while while you get yourself set up. They'll be okay for a few hours, as long as you keep them out of direct sunlight if they're in a jar. So read up on them. So what is it that you found? Read up on what the conditions are that they like. So again, here's this, use that, use this as motivation to dig a little bit deeper into the needs of those animals. And if you're doing lessons at home, this is a great opportunity to link in with the curriculum, with those needs of the animals. What kind of shelter do they need? What kind of food do they need? Where do they get their water from is also a really good one and a really important one if you're going to be fostering a creature, an invertebrate, because a lot of kids, their first inclination is to put a little dish of water in the container for them. But not all animals need that. There's quite a lot of animals and invertebrates that get all the water they need from the food that they eat. And actually the water dish can be a risk. If animals fall into that water dish, they can drown. And if you've got soil in your habitat, if that water spills, um, a lot of the you know the soil will get too soggy and too wet for the invertebrate, and that could really harm them as well. So do a bit of research. How does your animal, uh, how does your invertebrate get its water? Does it get it all from its food, or would it benefit from having a little water dish? Once you've got their habitat set up, you can introduce the creatures to their new little, their foster home, and then uh, observe their behavior for a few days. And then once you've done that, make sure you put them back. Now you can use any size container for this, just make sure it's the size container that's kind of suitable for your creature. So if you've got uh, a big snail, you know, don't put it in a teeny tiny jar, give it some space to move around. Invertebrates will be all right for a day or two in a jar. What you'll need to do, of course, is all these invertebrates will need oxygen to survive. So do be sure to take the lid off once or twice a day and just blow gently into the jar. That'll just exchange the air that's in there with fresh air from the outside. Or if, if you've got mesh or a coffee filter, you can use that on top as well. Use a, an elastic band to, to hold it in place. Great creatures to foster are slugs and snails, particularly in glass jars, because when they crawl up the glass is a really fun opportunity to watch how it is that they move around and you'll see these waves moving down their foot and that's um that's how they move around they kind of push against the slime that they leave behind it's also a great opportunity to watch how they feed um, because most of that usually you can't really see it very well but on glass you'll be able to see them uh their little mouths and slugs and snails they have this structure in their mouth called a radula it's like a very scratchy raspy tongue and they use that to sort of grind at their food and you can see that in action. Uh, if you put in with them a, a crunchy vegetable as well, uh, you can sometimes hear the snails 
rasping away at the at the food and that can be quite nice these are also great opportunities to deal with um, any food waste you might have because a lot of these things uh, you'll be able to feed on kitchen scraps so peelings from vegetables or salad that's getting a bit wilty and maybe you don't want to eat it you can feed it to these guys you can also use these vegetable peelings as lures out in the wilds set out some maybe carrot peelings the night before and then check them early in the morning or even after just an hour or two and see what's come to, to feed it. What I would say though is if you are doing this somewhere outdoors that you do check them often and don't just leave the scraps there. Take them home if nothing's come or when you're done with them because leaving some, certain vegetable peelings you might attract pests like rats and mice uh, especially if you're in an urban area like a park. So do be conscientious of, of that. So now you've fostered one of these creatures, you've observed their behavior, what do you do with this? If you really want to dig really deep, a good project might be to build your own ID key. An ID key is a guide to help you identify creatures, and it can be as simple as a book with pictures and descriptions of the animals that you found, and then you can just flip through it to find, to match the description or the picture. If you're up for more of a challenge, you might develop your own identification key. Now what a key does is it asks you a series of questions about the thing you're trying to identify. And like a flowchart, as you answer those questions, you follow the arrows until it leads you to a smaller group of options. And that means that you don't have to flip through this whole big book of things. It gives you a narrower range of options. So when you are making notes, if you want to make your own key, um, start making a table of different features that these animals have. So you might have a table that has columns for the number of legs, the number of body segments, the number of wings that you can see. Uh, and you can include any other details you want. Things like color, are they furry or not? Do they have spikes? Put all this information in a table. Then what you can do is you can either jot down questions on little slips of paper and the names of the creatures that you found on little slips of paper and have a go at rearranging them. So if you start by asking the first question as the num well, how many legs does it have, sort the names of the creatures that you have according to the answers of that and then put the next question down. So is it going to be how many body segments does it have or what color is it and then rearrange all the names in one of their categories according to the answers to that next question. So if you've got six legs and then the next question is how many body segments does it have, take all your six-legged creatures and sort them into groups based on how many body segments they have. And use this as a drafting process to look at how does the order of questions affect how your key looks. Is there a more efficient way to ask questions than others? Uh, so you can kind of draft a key by shuffling around bits of paper on a table, or you can use a spreadsheet actually. So if your table is digital, put it in a spreadsheet, and then what you can do is try out different orders of questions. So when you do this, put your columns in the order that you think would be useful to have questions in. So if the first question you want is how many legs does it have and if the second question is how many body segments does it have and if the third question is what color is it then what you do is arrange the columns in that order legs body segment color 
and then filter your columns and then sort them in the reverse order. So you'd sort them first by color, then by body segments, and then by legs. And that'll give you a sense of what your ID key will, will look like. So both of these are a little bit complicated sounding. So have a look in the show notes, which you'll find at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. And I put a link to an example spreadsheet there and an example ID key. It's not a very good one. It's just a quick one I threw together to give you a sense of what one might look like so that you can have a go at making one yourself. Now, the great thing about this build your own ID key activity is that it forces you to really look at close details of the animals because you know, your six-legged, three-body part animals, you're going to have a lot of creatures that fit those two categories, but they'll be really different. And so in order for your key to work um, to work well, you'll need to pay really close attention to extra details to add in uh, to help you split out that group into smaller groups. And it's also exactly what scientists do to classify living things, because in theory, every species should have its own set of unique characteristics. Now, thinking about how to create your own ID key, looking really closely at features, thinking about how you, you use those features to sort things into groups, this is exactly what scientists do when they classify things. And if you think about it, every species should have its own unique set of characteristics. Now, not all these characteristics might be important for identification, and this would be an interesting thing to think about as well. So. If you're looking at color or size, for instance, how important are those for your key? Because you might find that one type of animal or one species comes in many different colors. So I know that I once found a white woodlouse and I thought, wow, this is like, I've never seen a white woodlouse. This is rare new species. And then I found out that, oh, woodlice are crustaceans. And so they've got that hard exoskeleton and they need to molt that when they grow. So they shed that exoskeleton. And when they have just shed, their new exoskeleton is white or very pale. And that's what I had seen. So using color, you know, if I had asked about woodlouse and if one of my questions was, what color is it? Is it white or gray or black? I might not actually be identifying different types of woodlouse. That might just be the same type of woodlouse, but one that had just molted uh, and another one that you know, has had its uh, exoskeleton in place for a few days, so it's darkened and hardened up. Same with size, you know, how important is size to identify different types of spider, for instance? Have you just found a younger spider, and so it's smaller, rather than an old and adult spider, which is much bigger? And sometimes key characteristics aren't easily visible at all. They might be very, very small, so if you're an entomologist, uh, some of the features that you'll be looking at is, you know, especially with things like flies, is looking at really small details on the hairs of the flies. They might also be internal features. So if you're looking at beetles and you're trying to identify exactly what species it is, um, sometimes the characteristics you need, you actually need to dissect out. And so again, they'll be very tiny, they'll be internal, so you might not be able to identify any everything exactly, but you can get down you know, pretty far, usually. Uh, and then there's some things that we definitely won't be able to identify at home because you'll actually need genetic information from that, which means that you'll need a DNA sequencer in order to get a, a positive identification of that. So don't worry if your key 
you know, doesn't have a series of questions for every single thing that you find. You might find that actually the best, what works best for you is to come with a series of questions that just narrows it down to a group. And that group can be as broad as Beatles. You know, that might be good enough for you. Now, once you've created your own ID key, or if you want to get ideas for how to do it, there's loads of them out there on the internet. There's also tools that lets you answer a series of questions about your specimen and it come, gives you a likely identification. Have a go at using those. Look at how they've organized their keys. Uh, look at what questions they've asked and then have a look at your key and, and compare them. What effect does the order of questions have on how easy that key is to use? So I hope this episode has given you some ideas for exploring and engaging with the natural world from the comfort of your own home. As always, if you've got any questions or comments, you can send them in to knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And notes for this show are, of course, located at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. My name is Victor. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.